you that I don't know. Hey, Polo, what's up, man? Uh, I was looking for somebody with a tiger on the shirt so I could go, hey, tiger, but I didn't find anybody. Um, we got a bull right here, but he, you know, San Antonio Blake. All right, um, today we're going to be talking about Mark uh, 1, 12, and 13, the temptation of Christ. Two verses, and they gave me only two verses because that was probably enough to fill up a couple of hours. And um, so we're going to cut a lot out, and if you feel like you need to leave, you know, for lunch or something early, um, then by 1 o'clock or so, feel free. Uh, that's fine. We do, have to, uh, we do have to say something first, though. The, the point of this is not going to get into some of the things about the temptation of Christ that you might be familiar with associated with Lent. If any of you come from a more traditional background, you'll have heard about Lent. You'll have, uh, you'll have seen some discussion about giving something up and the idea of fasting. Um, it's a great study. I'd encourage you to do it. Mark doesn't mention the fasting, although we, we're going to talk about it just a little bit. Um, but I wanted, to, uh, I wanted to say that the, the big emphasis for today is going to be on the driving of the Holy Spirit. That there's something else that Mark picks up that the other two gospel writers that record this temptation miss. I shouldn't say they miss it, they record it, but they don't record it in exactly the same way. Um, before we get into the text, though, I, I want to pray for a lady named Kathy Harding. Um, my brother, for those of you that have met him, is a consultant. He travels. Uh, he's not in town a lot. Right now, he's in Michigan. He didn't want to be in Michigan. In fact, he fought against going to Michigan. He was planning to go to, I think, Pennsylvania on a consulting job there. And he just really felt God calling him to this nuclear power plant in Michigan called Fermi. And he I mean, he fought against it. He tried to get this other contract. He was on the other contract, and something felt. He just really was like, okay, well, God wants me to go to Fermi. When he was there, and this happened actually just, just this week, um, a lady that got him uh, several positions uh, in, in the career field that he's in moved him forward uh, in his job, promoted him to get to the point where he was a senior tech in what he does, uh, had a hiatal hernia rupture this week. And when that happened, it actually poked a hole in her stomach. The doctors didn't know what happened. They said that there are only a few surgeons in the country that would have risked the operation that she went through uh, this past week. She's okay. She's in ICU, but she's going to recover. But she might not have made it had it not been for the fact that my brother walking her to the car recognized that she was not doing well. And checked on her in the hotel room and drove her to um, a hospital in Toledo. Be very sensitive to what the Spirit is doing and what He's calling you to because it may be that the Spirit is driving you to do something you would not do on your own. Mark 1, 12, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering, him, ministering to him. Father God, we ask that your presence would fall on us here, that we would be sensitive to the movement of your Spirit, that we would adjust our lives according to the obedience for what you've called us to, and that we would hear what Mark has to say to us today. Help me to be your vessel, and if it's not of you, let it fall away. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so for our sermon outline today, we're just going to use the text. Uh, and like I said, they only gave me two verses, and so I can't go verse by verse. Instead, I'll go word by word. All right. Um, the Spirit is going to be the key to this whole passage. 
Now, I'm going to submit that to you, but we're going to go off that topic, or it's going to appear that way. And in fact, it appears that way all throughout Scripture. The Spirit shows up, and then all of a sudden, you don't see much. Watch how this happens. Okay, so the Spirit, this, who is this invisible God? Okay, what did the Spirit do immediately? Immediately after what? What happened just before this? Baptism. Immediately. So Mark uses this term, but every single record of the, of the temptation of Christ comes immediately after the baptism. That's significant. We'll talk about why. The Spirit drove him. This is a very unique term. In fact, it's a term that Mark uses for casting out demons and, uh, you know, a variety of different things. I'm, we won't put all these scripture references up, but, like, you guys familiar with the take the plank out of your own eye before you can see clearly to pluck the speck out of someone else's eye? That removing um, is this casting out, this, this uh, it's a term that denotes some amount of pain, violence, resistance. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. Okay, where did he drive him to? The wilderness. Um, wilderness concepts from the wilderness. Anybody? What, what does the wilderness remind you of in Scripture? Danger? Yeah, absolutely. Anything else? Scripture, wilderness. Wandering? The Jews wandering in the desert? Right? Okay. What is the wilderness not? Safe. Okay? The wilderness is not Eden. It's not safe. It's not bountiful. It's not providing for us. All right, so how long was he there? Okay? Who, what, what, was he, what was being done to him there? He was being tested. By whom? And in the end, it wraps it up, and, and Mark captures this little thing that it almost sounds like it's out of a children's book. You know, he's... Mark, the ultimate summary of the temptation of Christ. Yeah, he was in the desert 40 days, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels ministered to him. It sounds like a wrap-up, but I want to encourage you, it's not. It's, it's the actual point of where we're headed today. The angels were ministering to him, and he was with the wild animals because he was the man, Adam, that was able to do what Adam was not able to do in paradise. He was with the wild animals because Adam, with the tame animals, wasn't able to do his job right. And you can't either. And so don't be too hard on Adam. All right. And the angels minister to him, this, this idea of this God that we worship. Okay, so let's get to a theological conundrum right from the beginning. James 1.13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Okay, so that just makes the whole thing fall apart. I watched a YouTube video that's not worth your time um, from a Muslim uh, who lives in America and tries to convince Christians that Jesus is not God. And this is one of the verses that he uses. I want to encourage you, if you get somebody that uses an occasional verse and they put it out there and say, see, this proves that Jesus is not God, check that. There's a lot more going on here. We'll get to it later. Let no one say when he is tempted... I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted. So the conundrum right from the beginning is, can Jesus actually be tempted? James says no, at least not if he's God. We're going to unpack this a little bit, but I want you to hold on to this idea because everything you think you know about temptation, if you will submit it to God, is going to get overturned here. There are some key points that we're going we're to look at here. When the world was good and all the things that were in it, the only thing that was forbidden was an action of choice. God didn't test Adam with evil, but he did test him. All right, so we'll come back to that. All right, before we get into Mark's very specific, unique take on this event, let's, let's look at one of the other gospel writers so that we can 
at least round out the story of the temptation of Christ, I'm going to make some references to some of the things that occur. And one of the things that's mentioned is, is Mark making a summary. And I don't think Mark's actually making any more of a summary than Matthew or Luke. Matthew 4 is where we're going to go. Um, Matthew 4, 1. He's focusing on the very end of the temptation. I think Mark summarizes the whole temptation, and Matthew and Luke summarize the very end of the temptation. So we'll, we'll gloss over this real quickly. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. No, duh. However, there's an, there's an issue going on here, and if you're interested, you can check the medical references. I'm not an expert on fasting. After about three or four days of fasting, your body systems start to shut down and you stop being hungry. Now, it doesn't mean that you don't want food or you don't see somebody eating. It's not you know, going to drive some desire. But he was hungry after 40 days is a special thing that says he was in serious medical need of food at that point. You research that on your own. Um, some people say that was only a partial fast. Oh, well, okay, people have tested the whole fast 40 days thing. I won't get into it. Luke 4.2 says that he ate nothing during that period. So I, let's not go on a tangent of saying he was only fasting for meat or something. Okay, the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Okay, I, I will encourage you. We're not going to go down the loaf of bread thing because it's a fantastic study and it would take too long. Go read John 6. If you want to understand the bread of life and how Jesus counters this, the manna in the wilderness, the connection that's made here, go read and spend some time in John chapter 6. The first miracle Jesus performs is turning water into wine. So he certainly had the capacity to turn one material into another. He even says, I will make worshipers out of these stones. So he could make stones into people. He could make them sing. Making stones out of bread is not the point here. Uh, there, there's a deeper point about the manna. And we're going to talk about the wilderness, and there's a connection here strongly to the wilderness wandering. Okay, but he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Anybody know where he quotes from? Deuteronomy. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 8. Okay, this is a, this is a summary passage here from Deuteronomy 6 to Deuteronomy 8, where Jesus quotes from to resist Satan. Uh, the, the Shema, the hero Israel, the Lord our God is one, comes from this same section, as well as uh, the Ten Commandment uh, refrain comes from this section of Deuteronomy. I, I didn't take the time to go count, but one, uh, several commentators pointed out that Jesus quotes more from Deuteronomy than any other book. So if you have the time to count, please actually let me know if that's true. Okay, uh, and, and he answered... It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Who is the word of God? Jesus. Okay, I'm not trying to get you away from Scripture, but look at what happens next. The devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. Satan uses Scripture to tempt Christ. If you just think that the word of God is Scripture you may actually be in significant error. And you see that all throughout Scripture where people looking at what God said used it incorrectly. Be careful here. He will command the angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest, you're stri lest you strike your foot against a stone. It's a misquote, actually. 
he leaves something out of Psalm 91 that he quotes. I'll, I'll leave that for your own study. Okay, Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. We have this refrain back again about, can you actually test God? Okay, Luke 4, 5. Um, oh, I'm sorry, uh, that's out of Deuteronomy 6. Um, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Luke 4, 5 uh, points out that this is a very specific moment in time. There's a, a word that's used only one time in Scripture in Luke to, to point to the fact that Jesus showed him a vision of the kingdoms of the world at one specific point in time in all of their glory. Uh, interesting side note. Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And the devil left him, and behold, the angels were ministering to him. So who's present in that last scene in Matthew 4.11? Who all's there? We have Jesus. We have Satan. We have angels. Who else is there? The Spirit. I heard somebody think about whispering it. Look back at Mark one twelve. Jesus says that he does nothing except what he sees the Father in heaven doing. The Spirit was with him and drove him out into the desert. The Spirit is absolutely critical to Christ's defense, his movement, his ministry. The Spirit is not just present after Pentecost. The Spirit of God hovered over the waters in Genesis 1. It's not something that just because you see the Spirit absent from moving that all of a sudden he's not there. And that's very key to understanding the Spirit moving in your own life, too. Francis Chan in Forgotten God says, I'd love to witness more miracles, but when we make miracles the focus of our energy and pursuit, we ignore the priorities God tells us to pursue, and we impose our own desires on God. Sometimes we even resemble Satan, who tells Jesus to jump off the temple and perform a miracle. Of course, God the Father could save Jesus from harm if he had jumped, but Jesus refused to test his Father by making him perform a miracle. Chan points out that our, our desire is to drive God. But the Holy Spirit's mission is to direct us. We get it backwards. We actually see in Acts 16, 7, um, the Holy Spirit's forbidding Paul to go to Asia. Uh, and they went to the region of this place and that place. Uh, and having been forgiven, forget, forbidden, not, well, they were forgiven too. That's Jesus' job, not the Holy Spirit. Okay, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, and when they came up to a different place, uh, they attempted to go to a different place, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. All right, let, let's move on. Uh, let's, let's get a little more distance here. You, you get the point. The Holy Spirit is absolutely critical to the movement of what's going on in the temptation, but he's, he's critical in other places as well, directing our lives. I'm indebted to John Piper for this point. There's something else that happened. The Spirit immediately, and we said that immediately was after the baptism of Christ. The baptism um, shows something critical to what Christ was being tempted to do or to deny specifically. Keller points out that um, there's one voice in the baptism. God's voice says, you are my beloved son. But the voice of Satan keeps ringing and ringing. If you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, and it doesn't just stop at the end of the temptation in the desert. It goes throughout 
the ministry of Christ all the way up until he's on the cross. And they say, if you're the son of God, pull yourself off the cross. The, the voice of evil keeps ringing in your ears, questioning the word of God. But Piper points out that Luke actually did something interesting here. He inserts the genealogy of Christ between the baptism and the temptation. Obviously, that's not in order. Okay, um, Seth, it, this is in Luke three thirty-eight. Seth was the son of Adam. Who was Adam the son of? Is it up there? A- Adam's the son of who? Adam, the son of God. Adam was a direct creation of God. He was created by God directly. God was his father. Jesus is the only begotten son, so let's not confuse the difference between Adam, the son of God, and Jesus, the son of God. There's a distinction, but it's a distinction that as you trace through Scripture, you find is extremely significant. We inherit the brokenness from Adam. Christ was a son of God directly Unlike Adam, born in paradise, Christ, born in brokenness, was able to do as, as the Son of God what Adam, the created being, was not able to do. We see this necessity of baptism as a blessing of Christ and a confirmation of who he is and the filling of the Holy Spirit to go do his mission. But he, he engaged it as fully man. He did not use, as we see in the story of making bread, when he had a legitimate need and the power to turn the stones into bread, he didn't use his own power, his own sonship, for his own purposes. He submitted to the will of God. There's something else that happens after this baptism where the Spirit immediately drove him out. This, this term, driving out, is the same term um, used throughout the, the Gospels for driving out or casting out demons. Let me show you an example. Shane, what are you doing here? Get up! Get out, 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 go, 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 out, go. I've driven out chain. It implies some force. Oh, good, you came back. I was worried. All right. It implies some force. Now, I don't want to get confusing. This is not the Holy Spirit casting out Jesus. It it could sound confusing, but let's not get tripped up by the term. And in order to make that point, let's look at James 2.25. In the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers or spies and sent them out by another way. She cast them out by another way. I, I think the two spies could have taken her. This is not an issue of just the power of Rahab over them to cast them out. It's also an issue of their obedience. Obedience is a real key point in this. While the, while the demons could not resist Christ, he cast them out and they had no choice, Christ submitted to the driving of the Holy Spirit. I think that's why Luke and Matthew both say that he was led by the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 5, uh, 7, and 9, 7 through 9, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and his supplications with loud cries and tears, you get the impression that suffering was deep. It wasn't just superficial suffering. To him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence, although he was a son, pointing back to the baptism, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became 
the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. The driving of the Spirit is linked to this idea of obedience. It's not simply a matter of being tempted by some evil thing. It's the very mission of Christ to obey, to go to the cross. In Philippians 2.8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. If you look at Matthew and Luke's account of the temptation, you, you very clearly see that what, Je- what Jesus was tempted to deny was the sacrifice on the cross. Satan tells him, go cast yourself off the temple. And again, we're not going to get too far into that because we're studying Mark, not, not Matthew or Luke. But this idea that Christ was, was being shown another way. If you worship me, Satan, I'll give you the kingdoms. Notice that Christ never questions his ownership of them. Satan clearly had dominion. We'll talk about that in a second. We're not talking about Satan yet. I'll put him off. All right. Where was Christ driven to? Okay, he was, Christ was driven by the Holy Spirit, and he obeyed that driving force of the Holy Spirit, and he was driven into the wilderness. And we talked about this. Okay, let's look at Genesis 2 and, and contrast what the wilderness wasn't. Genesis 2, 15, the Lord God took Adam and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded him, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. There was no fasting in Eden. Even the trees were supporting the fact that Adam was denied no food. Wherever he went, there was something to eat. He didn't have to provide for himself. He didn't have to think about it. He didn't have to worry about it. All he had to do was tend to the garden. We're not even, I mean, it, it sounds like it was work, but it, I think Adam enjoyed it. it. There was nothing about it that seemed like it was toil because that came in the curse. This idea that the fasting of Christ is contrasted to the provision of Eden is so critical to seeing what Christ did. There, there's a spiritual benefit of fasting it's seen in every culture. Um, I'm not going to deny that. I am going to say if you try and do a fast, it, I mean, you know, skipping meal or cutting something out of your diet, fine, whatever. But if you're going to take a serious fast, talk to your doctor, make sure you understand the ramifications of it, make sure you do the research. It's not unique to Christianity. There are all kinds of cultures that fast and they see some spiritual benefits, so there's all kinds of materials written about it. The point here is not to give Jesus as an example that you should fast and be spiritually pious like him. That's not the point really at all. The point here is that Christ was not cheating. He was in this broken world, and instead of driving towards the Garden of Eden, he was driving towards the Garden of Gethsemane. The testing of Christ points to the Garden of Gethsemane, and this is right before the crucifixion. You see him tested again. And about 18 months from now, when Mark gets to Gethsemane, you'll see that. All right. um, He was there for 40 days. This is an interesting... Adam is not the only comparison. I'll make a sideline note of this, because the 40-day temptation points to the 40 years in the wilderness. Um, The fact that Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6 and 8 when he's uh, rebuking Satan is very significant here. Let's look at Exodus um, 34, 28. So Moses was there... With the Lord, 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, Notice Moses is not alone. Jesus was not alone. And if we think that Jesus was alone in the desert, in the wilderness, again, look at Mark 1.12. 
he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit remained with him until the cross. I'll leave that for another day, because he was alone at one point. There was a point when he was alone, but it wasn't here. Okay, um, so Moses was with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights, and he ate neither bread nor drank water. That I have a tough time with, but I won't get into that. Um, I just haven't had time to study it. Okay, Uh, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. We study often the contrast of Christ and the law and what the purpose of the law was. So I'll just go check out some earlier podcasts from David on that. This idea that the law was written about Christ is, is quite important. It, it, it's, um, it comes to this idea of what the Scripture defense was. Um, Christ in John four thirty four says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Again, you, you can study the contrast of the manna and in the, in the wilderness in John chapter 6, Jesus calling himself the bread of life. There, there's a, a lot going on here. Um, for brevity, especially given the time, we're not going to unpack it. But I will say this, Jesus was full. He was absolutely full, though it wasn't on bread. Uh, I heard somebody uh, give a fantastic sermon once on Proverbs 27.7. Hey, you think I went along with one verse, or two verses, he had one. Okay, uh, one who is full loathes honey, but one who is hungry, to one who is hungry, even the bitter is sweet. Part of the reason that we're dragged away is because we're hungry. We're not full on something. So if you're full, you don't want anything else. Jesus was full. I mean, the, the honey that Satan offered him wasn't tempting at all. There was something else going on. Okay, so being tested. We tend to think of temptation itself as something bad, the word testing, even in its context, uh, gives the idea of forbiddenness. Because let's look back at what James said. James 1.12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Uh, what word is in there that qualifies the temptation. What does God not test it with? So what does he not test you with? The comma is a little misleading. Uh, the, the point, the, the key that unlocked this for me is the fact that God is not tested is actually one word. And that one word is a unique word that's used only once in Scripture. If you translate it literally, he's ah-tested. Ah-parazo. Uh, okay, the, the idea is that it's a negative version of the word tested. Um, like, anybody, any science majors in here or somebody that English major that can give us an ah word? You know what I mean? Like, you put A in front of a word and it negates the word. Amoral. There you go. Fant- thank you. Uh, you put A in front of a word and it negates the word. This is a negation of the testability of God. You can't find the limit of a limitless God. God is untestable with evil. You can't use evil. You can't, you can't find the limit of him. So it's very correct to say that you can't test God. Using evil is not God's mechanism for testing you. But I don't want to make the mistake of, of, of looking at that verse and implying that God doesn't test you. There's lots of scripture that says that he does. And, and Christ was tested, but he is untestable. You see the difference? 
Okay, I won't dwell on it then. Okay, but each person is tempted, this is verse 14, when he is lured away and enticed by his own desire. Christ had desires, but those desires weren't warped or uh, debased or, or broken. His desire for the nations um, in the Matthew and, and Luke account, it, Satan shows him the nations. Christ had a desire. He had been promised to the nations. Your desires get warped. My desires get warped. And then those evil desires get used. Look at verse 15. Then the desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. It's when those desires, Eve in the garden looking and seeing that the fruit was good, she desired it. The desire is not wrong, but when it gets warped, all good things become corrupt things. Everything was good in the garden. Let's, let's look at another example of this. In 1 Corinthians 7, I'll, I'll put this together real quick. Um, and I had to bring in sex to keep it interesting. Okay, so uh, this is about sex, but it's not about sex. Okay, do not deprive one another in marriage. Qualifier. Read the rest of 1 Corinthians 7. Except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Here's where it puts together. Watch the order of this. Then to come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Who does the testing? Satan. Because of whose lack of self-control? The desire gets warped. Satan uses that. You do have an adversary. We don't have time to unpack Satan. Um, I will point out the fact that a lot of other scholars, when they're dealing with the temptation of Christ, I say other scholars like I was one. Did you see that? A lot of scholars... Uh, like people with PhD after their name, Chuck Missler and Tim Keller and folks like that, have pointed out that the recognition of the personal evil is really key to understanding where the battleground is. Okay, I won't, I won't deal with it. I will point out the fact that we need to be careful when dealing with this in general. Jude 1, 8 through 10. Uh, in a like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Watch what Jude says here. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses. You study that on your own if you want to. Um, He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme what they do not understand, and they're destroyed like animals, and we'll talk about animals later. Okay, the issue here is that you don't have the authority to rebuke Satan. You don't. So don't do it in your own name. In, in John 8, 44, uh, Jesus says of the devil, he was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth, but there's no truth in him. In James 4, 7, it says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. I bet if you've been around the church long enough, you've heard half of this verse. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Bull! You don't have the power to resist the devil. He is bigger than you, he is scarier than you, and he's not hiding behind every tree, okay? But you submit to God, and then you resist the devil. In whose name? Not yours. You submit to God, and then you resist the devil. There's an order to this. And it's important if you ever get into any study of spiritual warfare. So we don't have time to unpack Satan. I won't, uh, I, I won't deal with this. If you're curious about it, if it's an area of struggle for you, come get my notes. 
Um, he's a ruler. We see that in Matthew 12, Mark 3. He opposes the word in Mark 4, Luke 8. Um, he speaks opposition against the cross specifically uh, in Mark 8, John 8, Acts 5, 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, he's a fallen angel. We see in Luke 10. Okay, I could keep going on. He binds the body. He has to make requests of God. We see that in Job. Um, he enters Judas specifically. Uh, so there's, there's some interesting context there. Um, he has a purpose. Satan has a mission. He was created good and fallen. Let's not forget that he was originally created for a purpose. He schemes, uh, thus he is not all-knowing. He doesn't have to make up his plans and scheme and be confused and confounded if he were all-knowing. So don't confuse Jesus and Satan to think that they're brothers or something. Okay, uh, he has a specific location. Jesus tells him to go, and he goes. He's not omnipresent. Um, He has an end. Hell, in fact, was created for Satan. And you see in Revelation 20 and other places, Satan is not everlasting. He wasn't from before all time. He's a created being with a beginning and an end. Um, Again, you study that on your own. The key point here, and you see it in the other accounts, is that Christ is using Scripture to confront Satan. Satan is using Scripture to tempt Christ. How do you know the difference? In John 5, 39, you search the Scriptures because you think that they have eternal life for you stored up. But it's them who bear witness about Christ. The Scriptures have a purpose as well to drive you to the cross. Uh, Let's look at another reference. In, In Luke 24, 27, on the road to Emmaus, after Jesus had appeared hidden to a couple of disciples after the resurrection, and they're questioning what's going on. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures of these things concerning himself. The scriptures are about Christ. What do the scriptures get used negatively for? Well, first of all, if you oppose the cross, uh, let's look at uh, Mark 8.33. Jesus rebuked Peter here and said, get behind me, Satan. Now, that's a pretty scary verse. When he looks at Peter, you know, keys to the kingdom, Peter. And he says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Recognize that where Satan was using Scripture, he was using it opposed to the cross. Let's look at the mission of God in Hebrews 2. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, to bring many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, uh, I will tell your name of my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. Behold, I am the children, uh, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore... Children share in flesh and blood. He makes himself, likewise, a partaker of the same thing. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Who has the power of death? It's up there, I think. Who has the power of death? Christ through death destroys the power of Satan. When you use Scripture for anything other than looking at how it reveals Christ and his mission to go to the cross, you run the risk that you're aligning yourself like Peter by trying to tell Christ not to go there. It's his point, his mission, his purpose. Um, let's, let's skip down to verse 18 on that. Uh, for because he himself, 
has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 2 is great. Um, I, we're, we're not going to get into the bread of life and the testing of Christ. There's some fantastic parallels of the temptation of Christ in the Lord's Prayer. Um, Turn the stones into bread. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Okay? I will give you all the kingdoms because they're mine. Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done. Yours is the kingdom and power and the glory forever. So if you, if you want a great side study, go check out the difference between the Lord's Prayer and the temptation of Christ. See how they line up. Very fascinating. There's significance in the stones. Uh, I, I read this week, I, get, I got the uh, Spurgeon morning and evening, and he made a specific reference to the stones being risen up like Abraham, and he goes through this scripture tour of all the times stones are used. They're used several times in the temptation of Christ. Great side study if you have a chance. There's the desire of the nations and mission, global missions from the beginning of Abraham. I will bless you so that you will be a blessing to others. All nations will be blessed through you. This theme of all nations runs throughout Scripture. But don't miss the point. Scripture's not about the nations. Scripture's not about symbolic stones turning into worshipers and bread for your provision. Scripture's not about those things. Scripture's about driving Christ to the cross and letting you see your salvation there. You, you see it, yeah? Or maybe you don't. All right, so after this temptation of Satan, he was with the wild animals. Mark brings up this reference. We talked about it earlier. Um, and when Mark says he was with the wild animals, I see children's books. I, I, I literally see, you know, something from a Jehovah's Witness flyer that sticks in front of you and there's all these animals around and Jesus is happy and blonde-haired. No offense to those of you that are blonde. Sorry. Genesis 2 Back to Genesis 2, back to paradise. In verse 18, the Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. See the contrast between the wild animals in the Garden of Eden? And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. And he gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now, every guy in the room knows what comes next. What comes next? A naked woman. In John 15, 26, but when the helper comes, Jesus says, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me. This word helper, you could do a great study of the, the helper and the fact that the Shekinah glory of God was a feminine noun. I'm not, I won't make too much of that. Um, the fact that the word used to describe Eve um, is a great uh, book called um, Captivating by John and Stacy Eldridge. If, if you women in the room are struggling with your identity and femininity, especially in uh, what appears to be a very male-dominated uh, patriarchal scripture, um, check out this book. Look at the fact that the reference to Eve to be a helper uses the same term as the reference to the ministry of the Holy Spirit throughout scripture. There's something significant about what went on in the Garden of Eden 
and what's going on with Jesus in the wilderness and his helper. The wild animals point to the second Adam. The angels ministered to him. Um, I I won't get into it, but uh, the section of Hebrews 2 that we read earlier is preceded by a great discussion of angels as ministering spirits, uh, their role, um, how they came, and and the difference between Christ and the angels. Uh, That ends in verse 9. It says, uh, We see him for a little while who is made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The ending of this matter, the way that it leads to worship, the way that it drives Christ, points to him as the last Adam. I'll close with this. In Romans 5, starting in verse 12, let's look at what the ministry of Jesus and this temptation and this testing drove him to. Let's look at what started his ministry after his baptism and drove all the way to the Garden of Gethsemane and the cross where he was left alone. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, who? Adam. And death through sin, so that death spread to all men, because all sin. None of you are guiltless. None of you could, I could not have survived that temptation in the wilderness. You've seen the Lord of the Rings where the elf... When she gets the thing, she rises up and she says, I would save the whole world if I were the Son of God. I would stomp out evil. I wouldn't go to the cross. For sin, indeed, was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, the connection between the two, even over those who were sinning, yet... Um, not like the transgression of Adam who was the type of the one who was to come. Adam was a type of son of God. Jesus was the son of God. Adam was a type. Don't miss it. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace been given that the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not the result of one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses bought, brought justification. You could say bought there. It wouldn't, okay. uh, for if by one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, the first Adam, much more will it, those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ, the last Adam. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, not the temptation, the cross, leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience... The many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. Now the law came in to increase trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, I pray that you would use your word the bread of life, to minister to us, 
to speak to us 